most people are bad at evaluating risk. And I think something I'm always looking for are asymmetric risks, something where there's a fixed downside that I know I can manage and an unlimited or a very a, a high maximum upside. And not all of them will work out. I bought a Bentley that is sitting in my driveway totally inoperable and I'm like desperately trying to sell this stupid thing. So it doesn't always work. But on average, if you stack up a lot of small losses with a lot of big wins, what does your life look like? guys, my name is Mikko Krasovsky and welcome to episode 108 of That Remote Life Podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today, I am super excited to be joined on the podcast by someone who once installed a swimming pool in his apartment to house his pet penguin and the only person I know that owns a private island, and that's Tynan. Tynan was first introduced to me as someone who would certainly be in the running for the most interesting man in the world, and I think you can understand why just from that short intro. I believe that we all have dreams of doing something amazing, whether that's buying an island or quitting your job to travel the world full time, yet most people don't actually pursue these dreams, instead just fantasize about them on their commute to work. And that's exactly what I wanted to talk with Tynan about. How is it that he can afford to live such an amazing lifestyle and what separates him from the rest of us in terms of how he views his life and dreams that allows him to take such action on them? During this interview, you're also going to learn why Tynan thinks you should most likely learn to play poker, why living frugally is so important, and the formula Tynan has used to purchase properties all over the world with his friends. But before we jump into the episode, I would love to hear what you think about this podcast. And I've made it very easy for you to leave a review. All you have to do is just head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash TRL and write your review. That's it. It's just that easy. Just head on over to that link. Once again, it's ratethispodcast.com forward slash TRL. If you're enjoying this podcast, leaving a review is one of the best ways to support us. Reviews are a key statistic that Apple looks at in order to determine how to rank a podcast, so your review will directly help us climb the rank boards and attract new listeners. So thank you in advance for leaving a review if you choose to do so. If you want to check out the full show notes and a list of resources mentioned on this episode, you can do so over at thatremotelife.com forward slash episode 108. That's episode all spelled out followed by the number 108. But all right, you guys, without further ado, I'm so excited for this interview and let's jump straight into this awesome conversation with Tynan. All right, Tynan, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for being hey. here. Yeah, my pleasure. Man, I am so stoked to have you uh, on the show because, like, I don't know where I heard this, but somebody once called you the most interesting man in the world. And <laughs> I was like, okay, first of all, sold. Like, let's listen to this. Like, I'm interested. 
And then I was uh, talking to a friend the other day when uh, I found out that we we're going to do this interview and I was trying to explain who you are. And the story <laughs> came up about like, they were asking me like, what do you mean? Like he's interested. Like, what does that mean? Like everyone's interesting. And I was like, no, no, no. Tynan literally sounds like the most interesting man in the world. And they were asking <laughs> me why. And the story that I used to explain what I meant was I heard that you purchased or attempted to purchase a penguin as a pet once. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me that story? And first of all, why did you want to buy a penguin? And like, how did all of that play out? Yeah. So a friend sent me this, uh, this website, it was called penguinwarehouse.com. No context. They just sent it to me you know, back in the AOL instant messenger days. And I click it and, uh, as a kid, I read this book called Mr. Popper's Penguins. I don't know if you've heard of that book, but for my generation, that was like, like one of the books that every kid read. And it's about this guy who has all these pet penguins in his basement and all this kind of stuff. And, and I think it just triggered something about that book. And I was like, oh my God, you can buy a penguin. I had no idea that you could do that. And I just like immediately clicked the inventory tab and it had five or six penguins, like the breed, the age, the weight, all that sort of stuff spent hours researching which penguin I wanted. It was, I was going to get the Snares Island penguin. I was going to name him Magellan. I was like, like, I had the whole thing figured out. And so I immediately send them an email. I'm like, hey, I'm ready to buy this penguin. I don't really know anything about penguin raising, but just let me know what I need to do. And I start telling my friends about this. I'm like, I'm buying this penguin. It's going to be amazing. And we happen to be going to Costco to uh, get stuff to make smoothies. And they had this big display where they had this 30-foot diameter swimming pool like one of those above ground swimming pools and they had it on its side so it was sitting like this in the store and i saw it and i thought that would be perfect for the penguin because of course he'll want to swim you know penguins always swim and so i call my dad who's you know he's like a builder he knows how to do all this stuff i say hey dad is there any reason i couldn't put uh you know three thousand gallon swimming pool in my living room and he says Ty, do not do this. You always have these crazy <laughs> ideas that I tell you not to do them and you still do them, but really don't do this. It's a bad idea. And I was like, well, all right, I'm still going to do it. I'm just not going to tell him about it. So bought the pool, set it up in my living room. It, it, it went from one wall to like almost the other wall. So there was like 12 inches you could sort of sneak by the pool. Took two days to fill up. Um, it had like a filter, a ladder, like all this sort of stuff. And so I was, you know, sending pictures of this to my family members and my friends. I'm like, look, I'm buying this penguin. Here's the pool it's going to swim in. And my aunt happened to go to, she, she lives in Boston. She went to the Boston Aquarium. She said, yeah, my, my nephew, he says he's buying this penguin. And they said, well, that's totally illegal. There's no possible way he's buying a penguin. It's not real. And she told me that. And I was like, oh, that's really weird. I mean, yeah, I guess they haven't written me back yet. And I kept sending it to people. And one person, they're like, you, you sound like you're being serious about this, but you know this site is a joke, right? It's like, what, what makes you think that? And very clearly on the front page, which I had totally skipped, it was like it was like an April Fool's joke. I mean, like none of it seemed real at all. So, yeah. So I never got the penguin. But that story is what made my blog popular. So what happened with the pool? Like, did you like take it down? Did you like leave it up? Yeah. So, I, you know, it was mostly for the penguin, but in the back of my head, I thought like, how baller is this to have an indoor swimming pool? I'm like 20 years old. Like whoever thought that would happen. And it, I just hadn't thought it through. And it never occurred to me that the water in the pool would never become warmer than the house air, right? Like obviously this makes sense, but I just never thought it through. And so it was really cold. So I went swimming two or three times in it. And it is a very bizarre feeling to be like lying on one of those pool floats, looking up at your ceiling fan, like a very bizarre feeling. 
But eventually, the other problem with it is that it was just a thin layer of vinyl on the outside. It was this inflatable ring. And as you mm -hmm. filled it, the ring lifted the top. But the walls were just this single layer of vinyl. So as I would sleep, I would like hear something shift and I would think, oh, God, my house is flooding. I would run out, you know, eyes closed, sort of like you, you with your alarm uh, that you were telling me about earlier. And I just put my hand around it to see if it was wet. And so I was actually about to go on my first cruise and it was a week. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to enjoy this cruise if I have the swimming pool in my living room and I'm worried about it exploding. So back then I lived in this house and my backyard between my backyard and my neighbor's backyard was this like dry creek sort of thing that in like a big storm, I guess water would go through it. And so I siphoned the water out there and it, you know, it takes hours. I mean, this thing was, I forget how many thousands of gallons, but it was a huge, maybe 16,000 gallon pool or something. And as I'm doing this, there's a knock at my door and I open the door and it's this guy and I sort of crack it open because I don't know who it is. And he's like, Hey man, like I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you have a massive leak in your house. It's just flooding the easement. I'm your neighbor in the back and I see it out my back door. And I don't know why, but I just like, I don't know. I, I just sort of, I'm like, Oh, it's just my swimming pool. And I open up the door and he looks at it <laughs> and you can tell, like you can see the switch flip in his head where he's like, Oh, this guy's a psycho. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay. Oh, well, good. Uh, no problem. I guess everything's fine. Uh, nice to meet you. Uh, yep, see you. And uh, yeah, and then actually I returned it to Costco after that because they had a return policy. And actually the one that they had on display had double walls, which looked a lot more sturdy. And so I, I cart the thing in on this big like dolly. And I'm like, hey, I need to return this pool. I bought it as an environment for my penguin. But, you know, I thought it was going to be double walled. It was only single walled. And the guy looks at me, he's like, wait, are you, are you being serious right now? I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, I need to get my manager. And he gets his manager and his manager's like, all right, man. Yeah, we'll take it back, I guess. So, yeah, Dude, is Costco is insane with that. My dad has a story about a friend of ours was moving to a new house and didn't want to take his like really nice barbecue with him. Mm -hmm. So he just like gave it to my dad or whatever. It had some missing pieces or something. And my dad went to Costco and was like, hey, like, you know, there was this model. Uh, I need like a few pieces that are broken and missing. I just want to replace them. And the guy told him like, well, we don't uh, actually sell this model anymore, but if you want to, you can like return the your grill and we'll give you full refund. You can buy a new one. And my dad was like, it's like eight years old. I don't have a receipt, whatever. They're like, doesn't matter. We were the only people that sold this. So just return it. My dad wow. got like full for it. So my dad was immediately like everything ever I'm buying from Costco, like no questions asked. So seriously, wow. yeah, Costco's the man. So um, you mentioned in passing there that all of this Magellan, you know, penguin buying in your house, setting up a pool all happened when you were about 20 years old. So yeah. can you just for anybody who's listening, who's maybe not familiar with you, not every 20 year old can afford or be in a position to a even consider buying a penguin. Although I think a lot of 20 year olds would be like, I want a penguin. Uh, what were you doing at the time that made it possible for you to even consider and go through the process of buying a penguin, even if they were fake? Yeah. So back then, I think from probably when I was 17 to my early twenties, I was a professional gambler for not poker back then, but online gambling. I basically found some loopholes in some online casinos and then just randomly found sort of another hundred or so people that were doing the same thing as me and created this whole community where we shared our tips and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, that really supported my life for like, yeah, I don't know, five years, maybe around there. And you had at this time, you dropped out of college, right? So you were already doing this in school and then you dropped out of school to kind of pursue it full time, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So I'm a fellow college dropout. And so I always think it's really interesting when I find other people who've done it. What was like the biggest problem for you dropping out? Because for me, for example, I'm an immigrant. So my parents, I grew up constantly being told, hey, we're moving to this country so that you can get a good education. So when I dropped out of college, I basically had to say like, hey, mom and dad, thanks for completely changing your lives around. uh, But I'm going to actually not do the thing that you moved here to do. So did you have any sort of like big, uh, you know, chasms to cross in that way? And how did you like, you know, deal with it? Yeah, I mean, I had a very similar sort of thing where uh, my grandparents on my mother's side were first generation immigrants. My mother was I think the first person in my family to get a college degree, she went to Columbia. So like, you know, essentially all she cares about are college degrees and grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I knew all along I would never graduate college. I just had zero interest in it. I knew that it didn't lead to any path that I personally wanted to go down, which isn't to say it isn't a great path for some people, but just for me, I knew it wasn't. But I also knew that I couldn't just drop out and do nothing. So I had to have some other plan. Um, and so I, I knew that my, my parents, particularly my mother would take it really poorly, but it wasn't even a question for me because I just knew I was going to do it eventually. So in my mind, it was like, okay, I need to be able to justify it to myself and then I can justify it to her and we'll see. What was interesting is that my mother and I have always had a pretty good relationship, but we really butted heads a lot on school because it was a top priority for her lowest priority for me. And it was sort of the only thing we fought about, but we fought about it all the time because I wouldn't do my homework. I never once studied for a test. I, and I, it's not like I was a genius and I did well. I just didn't study. I did poorly and I didn't care. Like to me, grades just didn't matter. And my mom, it was like, that was how well I was doing in life. Mm -hmm. So the funny thing was when I dropped out, I think she wouldn't speak to me for like a month or so. Like it was, it was pretty bad. But since then our relationship, it, it, made our relationship perfect because we had nothing to argue about anymore after she saw that I was going to be okay. And how did you, you said after she saw that you were going to be okay, how did you either show that or how did you make her feel better about that? It took a while because I mean, back then, you know, I think I wasn't that good at looking at things from other people's perspectives. And so in my mind, I'm like, I'm doing great with gambling. This is going to give me more time to gamble. I'm going to make more money. It's perfect. Thinking about it from my mom's perspective now, it's like, wow, what's worse than that? Like your kid is like, I'm dropping out of school to gamble. Like, (laughs) I mean, I know everything about this. And if I had a kid and they told me they were going to do that, I would like, I would be pissed. So I get it. Um, In fact, when I told her, I was like, hey, mom, just want you to know, I just dropped out of school. You know, and she's like, she was so pissed. She's like, you have to undo it. I'm like, and specifically when I went in there to meet them, they were trying to get me to take with the counselors. They said, take a year off. I said, no, no, I want you to make this permanent so I can't go back. Like, I really want to burn the bridge. And so I told my mom that and she was so upset. She's like, all right, well, you go gamble or whatever it is you're going to do. Like, that was the issue, right? But once she saw, like, that I was fine, that I was making money, that I was, you know, I didn't ask her for money or anything like that, I think she realized that I was going to be okay. Mm. Um, And, you know, it was probably a gradual process. But I remember maybe about a year after I dropped out, one of the big things with gambling is that her name, like in my name, I could only make so much money. But if I could get a friend to let me also gamble under their name and they would give their IDs and all that, pretend it was them, I could double my money. 
And so that was sort of how we scaled was having multiple names. And after about a year, my parents offered to let me use their names. Oh, which, and that was like the... Th that was a big one, yeah. Yeah. So and, and, it's and, interesting. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and, and sort of before that, this is another thing that I always like to bring up because uh, I think my parents, maybe I make my parents sound like bad people or not bad people, but like the antagonists in that story. Mm -hmm. What was pretty amazing to me is that when I was born, my grandparents invested some money in the stock market and it was like a college fund for me. And obviously having dropped out and having gone to a public school, there was still some money left, you know, maybe 20,000 or I can't remember what it was. And my parents gave it to me. So after like, I was dropped out for six months, they were like, look, we still have this college money for you. We know you're going to use it for gambling, but like, hey, it's your money, we'll give it to you. Which blew my mind because I, I thought it really showed that like, even though they disagreed with my decision, they they still supported me. And I think that yeah. that's actually been a pretty significant factor in my success in life, I think. It's interesting because you almost dropped out in the complete opposite way that I did, where I actually sold it to my parents as, hey, I'm just taking a year off, even <laughs> though in the back of my head, I was kind of like, I probably am not going to go back. And so I kind of sold it to them as like, hey, worst case scenario in a year, I can go back, but I'm, you know, I'm most likely not going to. So that's interesting. And, and the other thing for anybody who's listening that's maybe younger and, and thinking about this, what really, I mean, just by sheer luck, uh, I was reading at the time, How to Make Friends and Influence People by uh, Dale Carnegie or whatever that title is. And yep. that book really helped me realize, tried to like, I put myself in my parents' shoes and was like, why do my parents want me to go to college? What is the end goal of this? And so then when I approached it to them of like, hey, I know that you really want me to go to school because you want me to be happy and to live a good life, but here's why I'm still going to do that even if I don't go to school. And I think that that really helped. I mean, it's not like it was easy for my parents, but I think that that really helped them sort of, you know, like accept my decision, so to say. Um, I think that's so a much that was, smarter way to do it. It was luck of the draw. I just rolled the dice on that one. But so you, you mentioned that you were gambling at the time. And if anyone's heard of you before, um, you, I think, gained some notoriety very early on from being featured in the book, The Game, uh, which probably a lot of people have heard of or read. And what I'm curious about, and I know that you've talked a lot about your experience in that world and in gambling, but I'm curious now as somebody who runs a business and, and works for themselves, what are some of the lessons that you'd say you've taken from both gambling and kind of the, the pickup scenes, quote unquote, to call it that, that you now use on a day-to-day -day basis? What are some of those lessons that you've learned from those experiences that have moved on with you? Sure. Yeah. Good question. Um, so I think a lot of my, you know, I think there's a lot of my success that's just like, hey, I was in a good family, had good support, all that sort of stuff. I think in terms of what I contributed to it, I think a lot of it comes from the gambling days. Uh, I think humans in general are terrible at, access, at uh, assessing risk. I think there's about a zillion examples of that if you just look at the COVID issue, uh, crisis. Um, and I think people are really bad at understanding probabilities as well. So like, what is a one in a million? How often does that happen, right? If you're doing something a certain amount of times per day, how often does, does that happen? You know, for seven years, I lived that. Like my entire life was risk management. It was looking at these probabilities in both ways. Like I, I hit 
lots of royal flushes on on video poker, which is the kind of like thing that seems like a once in a lifetime and can't happen, but you realize it does. I've also had terrible losing streaks that other people might attribute to, you know, something else when really it's just the odds. So I think that if, if I were to like give myself credit for anything, I think that I'm really good at making decisions. I think I'm just a really excellent decision maker. And I think a lot of that goes back to that gambling day, those gambling days of like being very good at assessing risk and understanding probabilities. Um, you know, especially I later moved on to poker and I think that builds on it too, where you're taking a lot of, um, a lot of ranges, you know, a lot of imprecise information and you distill it down to a concrete decision. Mm. Pickup, I think also does the same sort of thing, right? When you're dealing with another human, whether it's a woman you're trying to date or just anybody, you can't precisely know what they're thinking, where they are in life, what their values are, but you can think about the ranges of that and think about what you can do that will, you know, most align with all of that. Um, and of course, there's also some risk management involved in, in pickup as well. But I think the biggest thing I learned from pickup is, um, well, it's sort of like what you're talking about with your parents. Like I didn't even think about how my parents felt about it, to be honest. Like it just, it just didn't cross my mind. And that's sort of embarrassing to say, but it's true. Um, when you get really good at pickup, essentially what you're doing is you're building, I think of it as almost having another person's simulator in my head. And so before I say something, I understand how it's going to affect that person. And I understand what that person cares about, what they want, why they're in this interaction. And it's not like I'm thinking about this in a calculating way, but I just know, right? Mm -hmm. You've done it, it so mean many I times. You've done it so many times. It's almost, almost like in, intuitive, like muscle memory in a way. Exactly. And it doesn't mean I'm just going to say whatever they want to hear, but I'm not going to say something they don't want to hear. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not like, for example, if there's somebody who's really polite, I'm not going to say something really rude. I'm going to stay within, you know, the polite. So, uh, you know, I was a big introvert. Uh, I didn't think much about other people. I think I was really didn't have a lot of compassion, uh, mainly because I think I didn't consider other people's perspectives largely. And so I think that that it helped me a lot with that. When you talk about the, you know, sort of like the risk assessment, I, I totally agree with you is I think a lot of people aren't very good at that and almost consider some risks bigger than they are. Um, like the way that I've heard Absolutely. it explained is like, uh, you know, we still have our monkey brain and we think that there's always a tiger around the corner. Wow. In fact, like the, the, the thing around the corner is actually not that scary, right? It's not going to, it's not going to kill you. What are some ways that people can like practice this or improve this risk management or assessment? Um, you know, I'm not a gambler. I've never understood, for example, like cards or poker or any of these things like don't come to me. And like, I don't necessarily want to go learn how to play cards. But if I were to want to improve that and sort of learn some of the skills that you've learned from poker, what would be some of or gambling in general? What are some things that people can do to like train and, and improve that in their lives? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the best way is to just learn poker, to be honest. Like, I think even if you don't care about poker, you don't want to make money with poker. It, what's nice about poker is that it forces you to stand behind your assessments, right? So if somebody says like, well, that'll never happen. It's like, okay, well, what are the odds and how much money are you trying to put on that? Hmm. So it, it's sort of like an unavoidable crash course. That's something that poker and pickup both have in common is that you're subjected to frequent, honest feedback, right? If a girl doesn't like you, you're going to know, right? Mm -hmm. If you're making bad assessments at poker, you're going to know because you're going to lose money in the long run. Um, 
So I think even for people who don't care about poker, if you're serious about it, I think that is sort of the training course for it. Mm. Um, if you don't want to do that, I think there's a few small practices that you can do. One is that when you make an assertion, you record it and you record the odds that you think it's going to happen. So for example, if you say, well, that, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. It's like, okay, is it a hundred percent not going to happen? Is it 66% not going to happen? And you record these and then you record whether it happened or not. And then using math, you could figure out how accurate you are and it'll show whether you are overestimating probabilities, underestimating probabilities. Another easy one is with your friends, you can make bets. So I wouldn't say I have this with all of my friends, but with a lot of my friends, we sort of have a standing agreement that if you make an assertion, you're you're willing to back it up at some level, mm. right? So for example, a year ago when COVID uh, hit, my friend and I were talking about how it was going to affect the stock market. Neither of us really at the time, especially invested in the stock market, but we made a bet. He said, well, I think it's going to crash. I said, I think it's going to be higher than it is today. So he's like, all right, let's bet. And you can't say no, because if you say no, that means that you didn't really believe in what you said. Right. And if you know that you're going to have to make these bets, it forces you to do that extra work of like, what are the possibilities? What are the likelihoods? Hmm. It's actually interesting that you say that because my wife, one of the things that she does when we talk about it is like when she challenges something that I say, she'll go like, how percent sure are you on this? And I need to be Great like, idea. uh, 70%, you know? And it's like, oh, so you're not hundred percent sure on this. So it's, mm -hmm. I've always kind of been like, why do you have to do that? But you know, it might be a, a, a positive kind of thing. So it, it's really valuable because most people make terrible assertions all the time, but then when they're correct, they remember that one. And right, so, right. you know, most people think that they're better at it than they are. Mm. Um, that's why, you know, a few years ago, I wrote a blog post of, I think it's actually coming due next year of what I think is going to happen in five years for me. And then I put percentages to all of them. So in a year, I'll get to see how accurate I was. Do you remember what some of the things that you like wanted for yourself in five years were? Uh, yeah, I think that. I know one of the big ones back then, it was before I was married. And so it was, I thought 80% chance I would be married or in like a very long-term marriage-like sort of thing. But I said 80%. And actually one of my readers bet me. And, oh, really? and he actually already, yeah, and he already paid me. Uh, and so uh, I'm trying to think what else. I think some of them were sort of more general. Like, I think I'm still going to live in Vegas, 90%. Um, yeah, I can't remember. It's going to be interesting to look at it. It was five years ago. And I basically only remember the wife one because... Uh, that guy bet me and he, and he, to his big credit, he, he contacted me. He's like, Hey, looks like I lost. I'll pay you. <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah. so I know that you're an author, you have several books out that people can check out on Amazon. Um, specifically you have two, I think that are like your biggest ones, the one about habits and also social skills. Um, I know that you do some coaching as well, and I know that you dabble with coding but I'm curious to learn more about like, what is your day-to-day -day business? Like, how do you make your income, so to say? Yeah, um, I feel like I never, you know, I feel like it changes month by month. I mean, if you sure. asked me this a year ago, my biggest thing is that I built a website called cruisesheet.com. I love cruises and it's by far the best cruise booking site. So it started as like a list for me and it turned into a cruise agency. Um, so that used to be my biggest thing I made money on. Not anymore. Um, I, I do do coaching. I've stopped taking new people. I took a bunch more during COVID. And now that travel is going to start again, I'm taking. I'm not taking any more. Uh, I do live events, which are sort of a similar sort of thing. 
books used to be my biggest thing I make money on. Uh, I'm also pretty frugal. I've saved up a lot of money. I invested some in crypto. So, you know, at this point, investments and interest on that are sort of creeping up. Uh, I don't have a strong day-to-day -day schedule, to be honest with you. I, I wake up, I have tea, I check my email, I try to knock one important thing out so that I can lock in the day's been win. Um, but yeah, you know, I just kind of do whatever I feel like doing. Sometimes I, you know, it's coding, sometimes going through a database, sometimes it's drinking tea with my friends. Uh, you know, I think in my, in my sort of early thirties, I was very hardcore about working, worked like 18 hours a day, that kind of thing. And now I'm maybe on the other side of things. I mean, I think hearing that a lot of people are going to be like, dude, Tynan's living the life, right? You get to wake up, do whatever you want, uh, you know, work, on the, work on the projects that you want to work on. So how were you able to get to that point? I mean, was it just money that you were able to save up from your gambling days and, and invest it intelligently in, in them? Or what do you think are like maybe like the three important things that you did that got you to that point? Yeah. So actually at the end of my gambling days, all of my money was stolen. So I had six figures saved up that if I had just invested it in like the most boring thing, it would be worth millions today for sure. So you uh, walked but, away from gambling with, with you, you technically started from zero after gambling. Yeah, I, I got, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that I, I, I did, I had zero and then luckily by a crazy freak stroke of luck, a casino sent a check to somebody whose name I was playing under for $30,000, which, you know, it's a lot of money. It's about the biggest check anybody's ever gotten. And I didn't even know they got the check, right? Cause like I was done with it. And like months later, like the casinos were always very slow to pay. And it was for a, a Royal flush I hit. And she was, a, uh, she was not a wealthy person. And she called me, she said, Hey, I got this check for you. And I had zero, like I like literally zero. I went from having, you know, six figures saved up to zero. And I mean, I had some equity in my house, so it wasn't like, but anyway, and she, I said, that's amazing. Okay. Give me this money. So she gives me the money and then she calls me a week later and she's like, Hey, they canceled the check and the bank wants me to pay it back. And so I'm like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, I'm... so basically the, the casino canceled the check, but her bank had already paid her. And wow. she's like, so, you know, they're asking me for the money back. And so in my mind, I'm like, all right, I'll give it back to her. It's like, you know, this isn't her problem. And she's like, but don't worry. I worked at a bank. I know they can't do that. I'll fight them. You're, you know, they'll never get it from me. So that was like what gave me the breathing room. And that's how I started writing books. Because uh, I, I had some time to kind of breathe. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, but what yeah, about but, like, yeah. So what do you think are those like, the, like let's say like i'm sure it wasn't just like one big landfall right so like what do you right. think are like the three important things that happened that got you to the point where you're at now so i i think it can i think there's really one big one and then maybe a few others mm -hmm. the biggest one is that i really lived below my means and i think people like think they live they're living below their means but like i lived in an rv behind a gas station right i lived in an rv for seven years and that's cool i calculate now. It's cool. I was one of like when I did it, nobody did it. I mean, I'm sure maybe some people <laughs> did, but they didn't write about it. But like when I did it, people thought I was a total psychopath. Like people thought that was really <laughs> weird. Like only old people do that. And, you know, n like no friends, nobody, there was no reference point for it. And 
I calculated when I sold my RV, first of all, I sold it for profit. So I sold it for twice what I paid for it, although I did put a, you know, some money into it. But I calculated that I saved $150,000 in rent over those years. And I didn't like spend that $150,000 on other stuff. Like I saved it and I invested it, right? And so I think, I think people like to talk about living below their means, but I don't think anybody really does it. You know, I, mm-hmm. for many years, I ate a one pot meal that I invented. It was lentils, quinoa, a bunch of vegetables, olive oil, coconut oil, and some spices. And, you know, it must've cost like a dollar that, and I, ate, that's all I ate every day. I just ate that, you know? So I really lived below my means, saved money. And I, I and I, I invested it. I think I'm a very good investor, not in stock markets, but in terms of like, I invested in friends, businesses, I invested in real estate, I invested in crypto, stuff like that. Um, and so even as my income went up, with when I had huge months with my blog or with my books or people would hire me to speak or something like that. I, if I had any windfall, I never spent it. That just went straight mm-hmm. to investments. Right. Uh, even, you know, I don't even know how much my income or net worth has gone up, but you know, multiplied many times from, from those times, probably my spending has gone up like 10%. You know what I mean? I still eat, I eat one meal a day and it's Chipotle. Uh, so I think that like every day, I think that, uh, yeah, you know, my wife doesn't like Chipotle that much. So probably, one, you know, last night we had tacos. So yeah, which I guess is not that different from Chipotle. But once or twice a week, I'd say we I have one meal with my wife that's not Chipotle. But like, if, you know, if she's out of town or something, Chipotle every day. I don't even think about it. Um, that is my wife's dream. I would have to say really? is All right, let's be like wives eating. eating. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, man, I also like Chipotle. So it's okay, okay, good. <laughs> but so... Okay, there's so many places that I can go from there, but one of the things that I am very interested to learn about or I think that you've done a good job of is I've heard you talk about the fact that you at an early age had the experience of having a lot of money and realizing that it doesn't actually take all that much money to be happy, right? And so I think a lot of us end up kind of wanting to have a lot of money in order to then say like, and then I'll do whatever it is that I want to do. What do you think people can do in order to not necessarily have to jump through the hoop of like earning it and then live in a way that like, okay, I've earned it. I know that I don't actually need that much money so I can be happy without making as much. Or do you think that you just need to have that experience? Because even though like I understand that personally, like I think I'm a little bit like, not necessarily that I've had a lot of money, but I know a lot of people who have, and I know that like, that's not necessarily what makes them happy. So I've gotten to see that firsthand, but what do you think are some things that people can do in order to have on a kind of like have that realization? Cause I think a lot of people know that, but they don't really like act on that or they don't really like fully believe it. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to fully believe until you experience it. And of course I only had, you know, I had this weird experience where I had a lot of money and then it took, you know, I probably didn't have that much money again for a decade or something. Right. So uh, I I think it's unusual to have that experience, but I think, you know, something that we all know is true is are there people that are 10 or a hundred times richer than you who are miserable? Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Like if anybody wants to say no to that, then let's argue about it. But for sure that is true. Right. I think that's like an empirical truth. And then are there, other people poorer than all of us who are very happy? The answer is also really true. Uh, one interesting experience I had is I went to Dominican Republic and Haiti, you know, they share that island. Mm-hmm. And 
it felt to me and you know, whatever, I, I just, I was there for a week. So who knows, but it felt to me like nobody in the DR was happy. Like everybody like felt like it just had this overwhelming ex- feeling that like people were poor and they knew it and they wanted to be rich and they, they were like clawing to become rich, which, you know, I think there's some, some nice things about that too, but, but it just had this, like, I felt like everybody was like trying, like trying to take advantage. Mm-hmm. Then I went to Haiti and far poorer than DR, right? Like I, I stayed it, it was the only time I ever did, or the first time I did couch surfing. And I stayed with this family and their front door was a hole in a concrete wall, like didn't close. They had one light bulb in this house, very poor, and they were so happy. And they were just like the nicest people. They had all these friends. And it really, really threw into contrast how I was like, okay, these people are way happier than the people that I've met in the DR, right? Or at least mm-hmm. at, at some level. And they're also way poorer. Um, so I think like we all know it's true. And I think it's just like internalizing. That said, having a lot of money is great, right? I think that like people think that it's like, it does make your life easier. And I think it increases your opportunity. I also think it really does increase your opportunity to make other people happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and which can make you happy. So I do think it makes you happier, but I think it's like one of the least important factors in making you happy. Um, something I've also noticed just in, you know, in terms of coaching a lot of people, seeing myself, seeing my friends is that most everybody has this idea. I think it's like a million dollars. People think once I have a million dollars, like everything, everything's going to change. The point at which I think things actually change are when you can make enough money that you don't that you have control over your time again. For me, I only had to make about 1500 bucks a month. I was living in my RV. And I remember like once I knew that I could make 1500 bucks a month on average, pretty reliably with like my blog or my books, you know, the weight of the world was off my shoulders. I was like, great. I can spend, I can live like this forever. I I have all of my time back. I can work on bigger things. I can spend time with people. Um, And I've seen other people cross that threshold. Now, you know, for some people, maybe it's 2000, 3000. Or maybe it's like, hey, once you have 100K in the bank, you can sort of live off the interest or that gives you enough runway for 20-year runway or something. Um, So I think that really does increase happiness, I think, when people get to that point. Yeah, I mean, there's also, there's interesting research. uh, I believe it was from Purdue University that actually gave it a number that said, like, how much money does it take to be happy? And like, where's the... Um, the middle zone, because essentially what they said is like, there's a lot of, like you said, rich people who are unhappy. And then there's, you know, obviously if you don't have enough money to put food on the table or to pay your bills, and that's a constant stressor for you, that's obviously going to affect your happiness. And so it was interesting what they cited was about, uh, I think it was like 75 to $95,000 a year for a single person. And then a family of four. So like if you are married and you have two kids, it's about $200,000 where they found that like, you know, where people, most people report being happiest. And the other thing, like, so for example, I started a community for people who, you know, in order to try to achieve that. And we focus on three things. It's owning a business because I think that gives you the most power over your your life and kind of the direction of your life being location dependent, because I know you travel a lot, obviously, you know, that there's a a lot of benefits that come with that and getting to that, um, a hundred thousand dollar minimum kind of spot in your income. So those are like the three things that we talk about. Is there something else beyond that, that you think is another really important milestone like that, that you found, you know, will bring you greater happiness and enjoyment in life? 
Well, I, I guess one thing I would say about that is that I believe that stat with the 70,000, 90,000, whatever, but I also think that something I always think about with those sorts of studies is, you know, everybody, you know, on average, an, an average isn't you, especially if you have an exceptional life, whether it's good or bad, exceptional, that, that probably doesn't apply to you, right? Probably your point is somewhere else on that map. So like, I think the difference for me, you know, back when I lived in my RV, especially like the difference in going from like zero to like 3000 was enormous to go from 3000 to like 6,000 or whatever is essentially nothing. Mm -hmm. So I think that, uh, I, I absolutely would encourage everybody who's interested to own a business. I think, you know, shooting for hundred K is good. Although I think, I, I think it's more interesting to focus on net worth personally than income. Uh, cause it, it's a little more permanent. Um, but I would also say if you can lower your, uh, your costs and live below your means. First of all, I think it's fun in some ways to do so, but you might get there like five years earlier. And I think once you do get to that point, you have no stress, you have your runway, you have your time. And so I think, in, you know, especially if you're working on your business, you can explore more stuff. You can take a longer view of it, which is usually better. Yeah. It's um, my friend, Dan Andrews uh, has this really interesting concept where he talks about the stair steps in life in terms of finances. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he talked about is, you know, going from like being $60,000 in debt from school to being actually like broke is huge. And then the For next sure. huge one is like having $10,000 in the bank because, you know, that $10,000 at that moment gives you so much security but that yep. 10,000, for example, like the next step up would be way, way, way bigger because you never really, like you need a lot more money to feel that sort of, um, you know, for money to have that much of an impact on your life again. Definitely true. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the metric I always think of it in is how long is your runway, right? Like if I had a one month runway, I would be flipping out. Like, I, I don't know what I would be doing. I'd be out hustling, right? Once you get like a one-year, two-year runway, you can start to breathe a little bit. What's interesting to me is when you cross that threshold to unlimited runway. Mm. And there's different ways you can do it. Maybe it's a passive business. Maybe you wrote a book. Maybe you just saved up enough money and you, you know, there are so many opportunities to earn decent interest these days and you can just live off the interest. You know, whatever it is, once you hit unlimited runway, like your life is yours, right? You're no longer working for other people. You're working for yourself because you don't have to work. And... I find that switch to be the most interesting one. And I agree, there are other ones that are also really interesting. Um, but to me, that's like 10 times more impactful than any other. Although I also have never been in debt, so I could see that being maybe on par, mm -hmm. going from debt to zero. How do you deal though with, and this is a very like first world problems and sort of a privileged question to ask, but how do you deal with a place where you have, unlimited opportunities to choose from. And to sort of explain my question, um, when I was maybe in my early 20s, I was very confused about what I wanted to do with my life. You know, I think it's something that a lot of people in their 20s kind of deal with is like, I have so many things that I could choose from. There are so many things that I could do with my life that you get overwhelmed with deciding what to do. And I had a conversation with my mom and it was really interesting because my parents grew up during the Soviet Union. And so the thing she said was, she was like, you know, we had no options. 
Like it was, hey, you're going to go right. do this and that's all you're going to go do, right? Like you didn't really have many choices to pick from. And while what all they wanted at the time was the ability to have a choice, the ability to have the freedom to pursue whatever they wanted to pursue, she said, looking back and seeing what I was going through, in some ways, she feels like maybe it made their life easier not having to go through what I was going through. Not that communism made life easy on them, but they never had to deal with that. They had fewer choices. Right. So, you know, obviously if you're in a position where you have unlimited runway, you know, you have money in the bank, you can do anything that you want to do. I feel like that feeling would be even more exponential. So how do you deal with having all of these opportunities and all of these choices that you can make? How do you make sure, like, you know, how do you pick which direction to go into? Yeah. So I don't worry about it. I mean, that's, that's the, the short answer is that like, if I didn't have unlimited runway, I would pick anything. I would, I would give myself a week. I would pick something and I would just do it right until I got to that point. Once you're, once you're past it, it's like, okay, at this point, you're probably, you, you know, the concept of EV expected value, right? Like mm -hmm. which decision, for example, in the long run is going to be more beneficial would be an easy way to say it. I think the highest EV move is actually just to let yourself go down different paths and find out what you really connect with and then do it or do nothing. Like at that point, if you don't want to do anything, fine. You know, I, I think people, I think the way society is structured, we feel like we have to be doing something at all times. Right. But like, if you're starting, you know, if you're starting yet another like SEO business, like, is that really a net positive? Like, does it matter that you're doing that? You know what I mean? So I think the process I usually lead people through, because I think this is a common problem people have, is I think, where do you want your life to go in five years? Like, what do you want it to look like? For some people, that's business success. Other people, it's they want a family. Other people, it's they want more time with their friends or whatever. They want to travel. And then I think, what is it going to take to get there? And even if you don't know exactly, as you're sort of evaluating things to do, you can look at it through the lens of like, does this have some reasonable chance of going there? Does it have any chance of going there? Um, and yeah, I just wouldn't worry about it. I think that we're just ingrained to worry about what we're doing. We feel like we have to be doing something at all times. I think a lot of people, when I see, uh, for example, my friend, Nick, uh, my friend, Nick Gray, he had a family business. His parents started from nothing. They, it's called flight display systems. And they were doing like the electronics for private jets and military helicopters and stuff like that. Right. Uh, they did well, worked on it for many years, sold it. My friend didn't have to do anything. And so he got into museums. He just, you know, he was never into museums. He lived in New York, fell in love with the Met Museum. And then I remember he decided to start this business called Museum Hack. And he's like, I think I'm never going to make a profit on this business. I think I'm going to always lose money, but I just love it. And I'm going to do tours of the Met because I just want it to exist. He sold that business for, I don't know how much, but some large amount many years later. So I think that often... And it was very fulfilling for him too, right? Like I'm, I'm sure he learned a lot and enjoyed making flight display systems, but I think, you know, the Met thing really was great for him and it was creating something new that was valuable to other people. So uh, I think if you look at the long term, just do what you want to do. Yeah, I follow Nick on Instagram. Uh, Nick Gray oh, cool. News, I think is his uh, right. username. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I will say, you know, he leads one of these lives that I'm very personally like not jealous of, but I'm like, Oh, it looks like he's always having so much fun. Like it looks like he is like 
really enjoying himself, like doing kind of whatever he wants to. And I think that that's what like we all want to get to. That's kind of like what we all strive to is to have this like, I think unfortunately far too many people, they want that, but they get stuck in this like um, rat race, right? Of like, they, they forget that they've earned enough to have that. And they forget to kind of jump off the rat race. So they get kind of like on autopilot. What are some ways that you would say have like enabled you? Like, what are some things that you do, for example, that you feel like, you know, that like when you're living your life like this, like what are some of the ways that you enjoy to like have fun like that? Because like I have caught myself getting in that rat race a little bit as well, even though I'm very focused on like building my business and that kind of stuff. I've noticed that like, I'm not taking enough time to enjoy the journey. Uh, So what are some ways that you would suggest people to like, look like to build into their race to like, you know, enjoy it more and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So a couple of things. So I think one is that what often happens is people to get from like, say, you know, nothing to having unlimited runway, just to use an example, mm-hmm. it takes a certain set of my, a certain mindset, a certain set of habits, and you just become this person, you know, that gets you to that point, right? You have a mode that you're in and it gets you to that point. I think people, and you become good at it or you wouldn't have gotten there, right? And what I think people forget is that what got you to point A isn't necessarily what's also going to get you to point B. And that's compounded, that's especially difficult because you've become good at this and it's become your identity. And you're like, oh, I've got to start over and switch to a different mode to get to point B. Let me just stay in the safe zone and keep doing what I already know I'm good at. So I think very often when you see people that are just chasing business for the sake of chasing it, when very clearly they're missing out on other things in life, I think that's often what's happening. Um, I think another thing to think about is that, you know, there, there are these projects where they ask people like on their deathbed or really old people, like, what do you regret? Nobody ever regrets not making, uh, nobody ever regrets uh, not making more money. Never happens. Nobody says, oh, I wish I worked harder, made more money. Never, Mm -hmm. which is weird. You'd think that would come up sometimes. Almost everybody has regrets about spending time with people they love. Almost universal. So I think that it's like worth thinking like, what makes me so different that that's not going to be how I think? And it's not just a rhetorical question. I think it is worth thinking about, like, am I different enough or do I have the same human needs that everybody else has? Um, I've seen people that have become very rich and neglected their friends and family in the process. And they have very hollow, I don't know about sad, but yeah, maybe sad lives, right? Where you can tell that they're like, they have nobody to share it with. They have no peers and they have to start making friends then which is hard because you can only make friends with other rich people basically, mm-hmm. right? Cause otherwise maybe the people are using you and, and you don't have that rich history that you might have. Like one of my oldest friends, we've been friends since we were four years old. You know what I mean? And so uh, I think focusing on friendships, focusing on friend groups, focusing on investing time and energy in those friendships makes sense. Same with family. Um, I think, you know, if you're totally poor and you can't support yourself, focus on that first. But once you get to where you're self-sufficient, start investing in, in relationships. Do you have any sort of systems that like you use to make sure that you're always checking in and making sure that you're not like just going down on like autopilot? Not really. I mean, I do think I have enough time that I think about those things, but it's not like a good system. Probably it might be beneficial to have one. Uh, I do have like certain rules where it's like, 
almost as a rule, I don't travel unless it's with friends, but I travel two thirds mm -hmm. of the year. You know what I mean? Or I usually do. So that helps me check in. You know, I build systems like buying all these properties with my friends, which it forces us to hang like in the past few months, I've hung out with two different friend groups in Hawaii because and it would have never happened if we didn't buy that place. So when I make decisions, I do think about it through that lens of like, yeah, I have goals to make more money, but I don't really care about those goals. You know, it drives mm -hmm. some, some of my more financially minded friends nuts that I don't capitalize on some stuff. But I do really care about how, how do I strengthen friendships I care about strengthening? How do I make my friends better friends with each other? How do I spend more time with family and make those connections better? And so mm -hmm. whenever I'm making a decision, those are the lens through, lenses through which I look. Even when I think about making more money, my life basically can't get any better. So I think if I make more money, can I use that to, to achieve those friendship goals? Like, can I, for example, the one goal I have is I want to buy a yacht, which, you know, probably won't happen for a long time, but I'd like to buy a yacht so I could take like my family on a private cruise. Like, how cool would that be? Think about the memories we could share and, and you know, stuff like that. Uh, that is a dream that you share with my dad. And it's actually funny because uh, right. my dad is a longtime sailor and that's always been the thing is like, he wants to buy a yacht. He wants to work on it. He wants to like go like sail around the world. And actually, I just yeah. had a conversation with him this morning. He called me up and he was like, hey, uh, we have a chance to take this yacht for like uh, seven to 14 days this summer. Go through like, you know, the Greek islands. Like, are you game? And it's interesting because I would normally say no, because I think I'm going to be busy and I, you know, I could use that money to like reinvest in like business and that kind of stuff. But it's something that I've noticed that I struggle with is like, enjoying the time like we talked about like enjoying the the process of going through it and i said like you know what like yeah like i'm down like let's do this so uh yeah i definitely think that that's if you do need help with that i think that that's another person that you can nerd out with or, like figuring out how to do that nice. um but you mentioned your you know you're buying you know your apartment in hawaii and that you buy property all over the world with your friends and this is something that when i found out that you do this really fascinated me and really got my curiosity going. Can you talk about like how you came up um, with that idea and how exactly does it work? Like, how is it that you can like buy properties all over the world with your friends? What is the, what does the sort of like plan look like? Yeah. So in the same way that like back when I was living in an RV, I was like, everybody should be doing this. And everybody else is like, you're a total psycho. I think buying property with friends is how I, that's, how I feel about it now, or I'm like, everybody should be doing this. And I think it's going to be popular later on. Uh, I think the way it really started, like the prototype for it was when I was a freshman in college, I watched this movie called Road Trip where they, uh, it used to be my favorite movie. One of the things they do is they steal a little school bus and they go on a road trip on it. My friends and I really liked road trips. And I saw this, I'm like, guys, we need to buy a school bus. Like how fun would this be? And so to make a long story short, we put it together and we actually bought a school bus and we bought a huge school bus, 40 foot school bus. And everybody thought this was going to be a disaster. This was another one where I told my dad about it. And he's like, you know, the classic dad line. He's like, you never listen to me, but trust me, this is really going to be a bad idea. <laughs> and, and again, to his credit, I bought it anyway. And the next day he was there with tools to help us fix it up. So like, you know, it's pretty cool. Um, and what's interesting is that it, it was a massive success. I mean, the bus ended up dying actually right here in Vegas, but uh, all of us were happy we did it. It brought us closer together. You know, people thought we would fight about it, but it actually brought us closer together. So I think somewhere in the back of my head, I had this idea that like, oh, when you buy property with friends, it works. 
and I'd always wanted an island. Mm. Like now, what what the yacht is to me now, the island always was. I always wanted to buy an island since high school, and finally found the opportunity to buy one in Canada. And at the time, I would have rather purchased it myself because I just wanted to be, you know, Tynan, king of the island. Like that was kind of my fantasy in my head, but couldn't afford it. So, and it was relatively cheap. It was under a hundred thousand bucks. So it's not like, I think people think islands are like millions of dollars. It really wasn't. Um, got 10 friends or 11 friends together to buy this thing. Uh, and it ended up hitting Hacker News. It was like one of the top things on Hacker News for a day. And it was very funny because everybody's like, it's going to be like Lord of the Flies. You're going to hate each other. It's going to be a disaster, like this whole thing. And, you know, I was like, well, I don't know. We did the bus. It worked out well. I think it's going to be similar. And the island was an unqualified success. I mean, I think most of us would consider it the best money we've ever spent. It's like it brings a whole dimension to our lives we've never had before. You know, I got to take my whole family there once, you know, one summer for a week, which was amazing. Um, And that was really the prototype. And what was interesting is that there were a lot of dynamics that we didn't know how they would work. Like some people are going to use it more than others. Some people are going to do more work than others. Is that going to make people angry at each other? And what we found was that it was the opposite because people who use it more do more work on it. And so the people who use it less, they're paying the same, but they're getting more for their money because they don't, you know, there's people who've never been to, uh, there's one person who's never been to the island. And he's like, yeah, I'll make it there someday. He's like, it looks awesome now. You guys have like, you know, buildings and like furniture and stuff. Um, you know, my friend Brian, who goes almost as much as I do, you know, this poor guy, he, you know, he's been in the freezing cold water trying to save our dock from floating to the, you know, the mainland. But he loves it. You know, we have all these these cool memories and projects. So uh, after the island worked, I was like, all right, let's, I've got a winning formula. Let me stamp it out. And so I forget what we bought after that. Maybe it was Budapest was the next one. And then we bought uh, Hawaii. We bought a, we took over a neighborhood in Las Vegas. Not quite the same, but a similar sort of concept. And then we, we just got a place in Tokyo. That was our last one. Maybe final one. I say it's the final one, but now I do have some. So maybe some other ideas. Is it always the same group of friends or do you bring like different people together? So it's tons of overlap. I think there's like four people who are in on all or almost all of them. Very few people are in on only one. Maybe, I don't know, maybe one or two people are in on only one. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's very similar people. And how and does it work? there's two people in- who are in on every single one. And how does it work with, because like I said, the moment that you, that I heard that you were doing this, I was like, oh, this is incredible. I need to do this too. Because like, um, one of my favorite locations, I think is one that I think you really like, I am in love with Budapest. It's maybe my favorite city in the world. And it's definitely one that I want to own property in, but to me, it doesn't really make sense for me to buy a man. Now's the time. Yeah. Everything's popping. You know, it's like, it's getting expensive, uh, more expensive by the minute, but how does it work? Like, how do how do people share it? What are the rules of engagement, so to say, for the people who go into this property? So what's interesting is that's the question I get most often. And it's also the one that is, it's not even a factor. So it's like, it you know, it's sort of like if somebody asked you as a frequent traveler, it's like, but how do you get all those visas? You're like, it just doesn't matter. Like, you just get the visas, right? right? Um, or you don't need them. The, for the island, I made all these rules. I had a, one of the guys who bought him was a lawyer. And so he looked it over. We had this big contract. We haven't even bothered to sign anything for the other ones because it just isn't a factor. 
what what happens is you think that it's going to be the kind of thing where it's like, well, I don't want, you know, I don't want this guy to use it too much, or I don't, you know, what if I don't get to use it as much? What happens in practice is that you want other people to use it more. Because like how much are people really going to go to Budapest, right? Or any of these places, even Hawaii, which is pretty accessible. You know, people are there every month or so, I'd say, but not, you know, it's not like it's booked. But most of the value is that you meet your other owners there and you hang out together. Mm. So I really think like if you, you know, moving to like the root cause so you don't have any problems is pick the right people. And I think I would not do it without the right people. How do you um, make sure that and, you pick the right people? Yeah. So the the way I look at it is I have a super, super close friends who are just in on all my weird schemes and they're invited. Right. And, and they were going to be invited from the beginning anyway. And part of why we're so close and part of why they're part of all these things is because I know that they they aren't going to cause drama. They're like proactive enough that they're going to help out. But they don't you know, they're like the kind of people that could lead if you, if you needed them to lead a project. But they're not like the kind of people that want to take everything over. Right. So you have a core group, maybe two or three friends. And I think most people in their life would like immediately like, oh, yeah, my best friend, Tom, he would be the one I would do it with or whatever. Mm-hmm. Then for additional people, what I think is if the other people in the group were staying there and this person happened to stop by, would that be a net positive for that person? So I have really good friends who I don't invite to these things because I'm like, you know, I don't know. Like maybe they would just get on each other's nerves for some reason, even though I get along great with them. I want to make sure everybody gets along, Right. Another factor is that I make sure the properties are cheap enough that nobody will ever need the money back, right? So, you know, for the island, it's like everybody had to put in under 10 grand. And so for some groups of friends, that's a lot of money. For other groups of friends, that's basically nothing. For us, it was like, I think for most people, it was like, yeah, it's significant, but like, it's not going to be the difference between can I buy my first home or not, for example, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that eliminates a lot of the drama. Um, and then I think the last thing is when I, uh, you know, I have these famous emails I send to my friends. It's like the Budapest hard sell where it's like, here's a picture of Budapest. Here's what we're doing. Here's why. Here's what you need to do if you want to get in. It's like Budapest is the best. Here's what's great about it, all this kind of stuff. What I try to do is I try to really convey the vision for what the place is going to be. So I did this with the island because I think there's a lot of different things people could think of a private island as. And for me, it was like wilderness retreat. We're going to build it together. We're going to like go there to write. We're going to go to the program. We're going to like take hikes in the woods, like learn how to fish, like that kind of stuff. What I didn't want was somebody who thought this is going to be like Ibiza, right? And so like, I'm trying to like build a rustic cabin. He wants to build like a nightclub, right? Mm-hmm. And so by sharing that vision, like here's what it's going to be like, that's going to weed out people who don't share that vision. So everybody wants the same thing. So we all work towards that goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like I love that. But how do you deal with like so you don't have any sort of rules in terms of like, hey, this one person has been staying in this place for three months, you know, he's like over like he's using this way more than anybody else would be. Like, how do you deal with like who pays for improvements? Like if something breaks, like does everybody chip yeah. in to pay it? Like, how does all that work? Yeah, so we don't have strict rules against it uh, around it, but mostly it's because we all just get along. So uh, up until recently, I'd say there were no examples of that because most people have similar sort of like go for a week kind of things. But a friend of mine got a job in Hawaii. And so he asked me, he's like, hey, you know, what do you think? Should I like stay there? Should I get my own place? And I was like, dude, just stay there. And then if somebody else wants it to themselves, you just get a hotel. 
So we have an informal rule, which I think actually, if I was doing it over and didn't know how things were going to go, I might make it a formal rule, which is that whoever uses it the most yields to others. Mm. So for example, in Budapest, I was like, I was the only one using it in the beginning because I was setting it up and all this. And then a friend wanted to take his mom there at a time when I had already planned on going. And I said, look, dude, I'm 100% happy to go get a hotel. I'll, leave, I'll meet you guys during the day. I'll show you around. And then you have it to yourself. I don't care. And he, he's a pretty easygoing guy. He's like, oh, we have extra beds. Stay with us and show us around. It'll be fun. But, you know, I wouldn't have minded. And so my friend who's there now, uh, you know, he, we have a little Facebook group. And he's like, hey, this is my plan. If anybody doesn't want me to stay there that long, tell me and I won't. No problem. And he's like, here's some plans I have for improvements. So uh, he, what did he do? He redid a lot of stuff in the kitchen, which needed to be done. Uh, and he's paying for it. And he doesn't have to. He's also the kind of guy who, like, after every island expense, every after every island trip, I'm like, hey, man, tell me your expenses so we can reimburse you. And he's like, I don't think I had any. I'm like, you paid for all of the lumber to build a, <laughs> to build, you know, a, a dock. He's like, I don't remember that, you know. Uh, so I think we just have very considerate people who, you know, the, if they know they're using it more, they pay more. You know, I do the same thing where, like, I don't, you know, I don't reimburse myself for like a lot of expenses and I try to just bring some of my own stuff and leave it there for people like, you know, stuff like that. Do you think that your ability to pick and group the right people together comes from a lot of your experience from gambling and having to like read other people and sort of like the pickup thing where you can kind of tell who would mesh with who? certainly for pickup right because like going back to that like having a person simulator in my head I, I feel like I can sort of do that um, I think a lot of it just comes from being pretty discriminating with who I hang out with mm. um, you know at some point in my 20s I I just I, I became very busy like I just started working hard for the first time in my life I didn't you know I didn't work hard for a lot of my life and I realized that I didn't just have time to hang out with everybody I had to like pick and so it made me think, like, what do I value in friends? Who do I want to invest in in terms of time? And so I think I just, honestly, I just have a super amazing friend group where it's easy. You know, I'm definitely gotcha. playing on easy trying to put together those groups. Gotcha. One of the things that I'm picking up from talking with you is that you're an action taker, right? So I would say I have a lot of ideas, but I kind of tend to shoot them down. Like I have a lot of ideas of exciting things that I could do. And I end up shooting them down. Wow, it sounds like one of the differences between you and I, and I'm sure there's many others, is that you kind of like take action on those ideas. Where do you think that comes from? Like, is that something that you trained yourself to do? Is it something that you think you were kind of like born with as a kid? And if it was something that you trained yourself to do, what are some things that the rest of us can do to also become better action takers on our fun ideas? So I, I think I got lucky early in that I tried stuff like the school bus, you know, which cost us each 300 bucks. So it's not like it was like a huge thing. But I think like I had some innate sense of like, if this doesn't work, then we've each lost 300 bucks. You know, that's not, I'm, 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 a, I'm a college student. That's a lot of money, but it's not going to like change my life. If it does work, it might be huge, right? I mean, think about that to have a private school bus with your friends and like tour around the US and have these memories could be huge. So, you know, going back to what we we're talking about, really early in, in, in this episode is that most people are bad at evaluating risk. And I think something I'm always looking for are asymmetric risks, something where there's a fixed downside that I know I can manage and an unlimited or a very, you know, 
a, a high maximum upside. And not all of them will work out. I bought a Bentley that is sitting in my driveway totally inoperable and I'm like desperately trying to sell this stupid thing. So it doesn't always work. But on average, you know, if you stack up a lot of small losses with a lot of big wins, what does your life look like? Um, and I think, you know, we also live in a society where we think we have to ask for permission for everything, right? We're, we're trained to ask for permission. And I don't know why I don't do that. I, you know, I guess I got lucky. But a lot of time, I still remember the first time I stepped foot on our island, my first thought was like, somebody should really be stopping us from doing this. Like, this is insane <laughs> that we just like, we just bought an island in another country and now we're actually like, this is my rock down here. Like it's, you know, somebody should have stepped in and been like, this is a kind of stupid idea. Why are you doing this? And, you know, I think maybe you've experienced that a little bit with travel when you're like, when, you know, you traveled all these countries, you're like, why is nobody stopping me from having this insane life? Mm-hmm. And I think it's a subconscious thing. So I don't think people necessarily think that, you know, specifically, but I think we have this thing where it's like, well, I don't know. Nobody told me I could do that. Or, ah, there, you know, there must be a reason people don't do that. Looking back, you know, if you were to, you know, ask your younger self, you know what I mean? Like when you were right about dropping out and like, what do you think your younger self when you're dropping out would think about the person that you became and the sort of things that you're doing now? <laughs> I, I think he'd be, relieved and absolutely blown away. Uh, you know, I think I had a certain amount of goals back then and I've certainly exceeded all of them by like an enormous uh, margin, which probably means I wasn't that good at setting goals back then or whatever. But, uh, you know, I think I've stayed like pretty true to the same principles I had back then. I think I've grown in ways that I hoped I would grow. Um, and I think I've also like, yeah, just done a lot of crazy stuff that my, that that guy could have never possibly guessed. Why do you say you said that you were that he would probably be relieved? Why would he be relieved? Uh, because I knew that I was taking risks. And it's the kind of thing where it's like a leap of faith. And I'm like, okay, I think this is going to work out. But, you know, it's not a risk unless you know it might not work out. Mm. You know, and, and it's one of these things where I can believe something good is going to happen, but it's sure is nice when it finally happens anyway, you know. Um, gotcha. Well, Tynan. Listen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. I've been super inspired by uh, all of the amazing things that you've done. Like I said, uh, you know, I'm somebody who has a lot of interesting ideas, but I don't take action on them. And seeing you take action on uh, like a lot of ideas has made me a lot more likely to do so. So I want to, you know, thank you for, you know, publishing and making all this public when you don't necessarily have to. Uh, you have the website, tynan.com. You have all the books uh, on Amazon, which I recommend people look at. And you, I know you recently started doing kind of like a weekly uh, live show. Can you tell people about that? Where can they find out more about that as well if they want to join? Sure, yeah. So I started doing Tea Time with Tynan, but it's not about tea, uh, where you know I drink tea every morning. And now on Sundays, I drink tea live on YouTube and I answer questions from uh, readers and viewers and stuff like that. Uh, and it's, it's pretty cool. I've got like a really good community of people that end up getting to know each other. It's pretty laid back. I'll ask questions. I'll answer questions on a certain topic. I'll have guests there. And I have some pretty cool friends that I have as guests. Uh, yeah, I think my, (laughs) I should know these. I think YouTube it's Tynan.com or Tynan.com or something. Uh, but I'm pretty easy to find. So it'll be this Sunday and then most Sundays. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Uh, I really appreciate it. And hopefully next time we're in Budapest, uh, we can meet up or something like that. But always a pleasure to talk with you. And um, thanks so much, man. Sounds good, man. My pleasure.